George. What's going on? Hey, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast, man. Thanks. It's good to be back in no, the no, studio. No, 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 no. Welcome back to the podcast ad. You're not even on this podcast. <laughs> no. I apologize. <laughs> I don't like doing podcasts with three people. No, you can't. It just doesn't. It takes away from like the conversation. Yeah, because if you tune in, you don't know who the hell's who. You'll be like, yeah. who is this dude? And, and then, you have to be like. And you're constantly like, okay, this is, hey, this is so-and-so. And, yeah, yeah, I don't like that. Nah. Well, we're a sponsored podcast now, and I want to talk about our first sponsor, which is tiertactical.com. It's T-Y-R-Tactical.com. If you're interested in picking up some of the best nylon and kit on the market, tiertactical.com. I've known Jason Beck for a decade now since he started Tier Tactical. He uh, used to own a different company that he um, sold off, and then he started Tier Tactical to focus on uh, tiered level of special operations, but offer a myriad of uh, textiles and equipment to everybody from law enforcement to military, but also civilian applications. Uh, he's got some cool kit that I've used on active duty and also some cool kit that I've used uh, for hunting applications for the outdoors and for teaching courses. If you check out tiertactical.com and you use Philcraft15, Philcraft15, you can save 15% on checkout. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee. Black Rifle Coffee, what can I say about it? They're a veteran-owned business. They support veterans. They have great coffee, a ton of different flavors, a ton of different blends. I love that Chinook. That's my jam. Oh, I like dark mine roast. is uh, Silencer Smooth. Oh. Yeah. Did you get a tax stamp for that Silencer Smooth? It's, it's not legal in California. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't drink it in California. But, uh, you know, they have a wide variety of coffees accessories if you like to do the cold uh cold brew they have that if you want to do the pour over they have everything they have apparel they have hats they have everything you need for all your coffee uh needs um blackcraftcoffee.com we have yeah. a coupon code right? we have a coupon code and the coupon code is a very generous code it's a uh, fieldcraft 20 to save 20 percent on your order i don't know any company that just gives 20 percent just all the time. That's a huge margin. It's great. Yeah. That cuts into our margin. It does. BlackRifleCoffeeCompany.com. Check out um, BRC, and then make sure you use Philcraft20 on checkout. Also, this podcast is brought to you by KillCliff.com. KillCliff is a natural energy drink company that makes um, a couple energy drinks that you could use pre-workout, during a workout, and the Endure, and then post-workout with the Recover. I like the Recover because I could drink a few of them a day because it has all the vitamins, electrolytes, no sugar, but doesn't have a ton of the caffeine. I don't like energy drinks that make me feel jittery. Even when I do the Ignite, which is uh, you know, uh, my, one of my favorite flavors is this. It's sitting right here in front of me. It's 150 milligrams of caffeine. Which isn't a lot. Mm -mm. When you talk about like the, the alternative that gives you heart palpitations, I like that cherry limeade mm -hmm. uh, for my, my uh, pre. In fact, I'm going to chug an Ignite before we go into our <laughs> workout. Uh, we're going to do some uh, hitting of the bags prior but make sure you check them out. And also, they're, they're official partners with the Navy SEAL Foundation, which does a whole bunch of good stuff for the uh, Navy SEAL community. And make sure you check them out at killcliff.com and use Survival15, Survival15, and that saves you 15% on checkout. And then our last sponsor is Triarch. Triarch Systems, what can I say? Uh, they have a very solid uh platform for carbines pistol builds they have 1911 uh, mod you can get you can build one with them we just recently got our you have what the 10 10 5 yeah i have the 10 5 and build. i have a 13.5 build and we got them in the mail and they are the most they are solid rifles like there's you, it's amazing the the craftsmanship they put into that do these rifles that they have uh and they're and they're accurate they're 
they just feel good. I mean, it's just like one of those rifles you, you bring to your shoulder and you're just like, wow. I feel like you're in love with your rifle. I am. I, really I haven't just gotten to shoot it yet. That's when that's really? I hate that. I should have brought it out. I've ran like a thousand rounds through my carbine. Um, yeah. Triarch also makes the uh, custom pistols, obviously, and I run their Glock 43 for my everyday carry as well as the Glock 17 Charlie for the pistol that I teach with. And what's cool is I've never cleaned that gun, and that I'm bragging about that because I've used that gun to kind of R&D uh, research and develop and make sure that it's it's being tested. Ran thousands of rounds, no issues. And we also have a coupon code for Triarch, right? Triarchers, uh, it's Fieldcraft. Fieldcraft, one word, and that saves you 5% on any gun build. Any gun build. For Anything. so long, I never even knew that was 5% off of any gun build. Yeah. I, think about, like, I mean, 5% is, that, that's a lot for a, when you do a gun build. That's like your tax off of yeah, a, a exactly. gun build. That's a lot of money. That yeah. adds up quickly. Yep. Triarchsystems.com. That's T-R-I-A-R-C systems.com. And on this podcast, we got the opportunity to interview a good buddy of ours, Kevin.P. Dot Owens from Ireland, all the way from Ireland. He came to yeah. visit us. Well, he lives in America, right? Yeah, he's an American citizen now. Is he? Yeah. Are you sure? We yeah. need to check his immigration stats before we let him on the podcast. We yeah. Make sure we do that. Great guy. I he's can't say enough nice about Kevin. I mean, I'm in love. What can that I say? accent, man. It's the accent. I think if he had a white people accent, he wouldn't be nearly as interesting. No. In fact, his, his story's <laughs> kind of boring without the accent. Let's just admit it. Just kidding. It was a lie. That was, that was a lie. You, you guys are going to be in for a, a, a treat because uh, this podcast, we're actually talking about uh, kind of Kevin and his upbringing and where he started. Very interesting. Kind of where he's at. Love yeah. the story. It should be for like a, a made-for-TV movie. It should be. Like Lifetime. Yep. Who would like play Hallmark or Who something? would play Kevin? Damn. Uh, who's the actor that's in uh, the, Star, he's, the Star Wars movies? He's uh, Ewan McGregor. Yeah. But yeah, you get you shave his head, yep. Ewan McGregor would be... Yep, uh, he could. Man. Definitely. I'm going to get them to write a book on him and start a movie on him. <laughs> he should write a book. Something like a... Maybe like, like a long gun manual or something. What would be the title? Oh. Potatoes and Cabbage, <laughs> a journey from the Army Ranger Wing to U.S. He, Army Special he, Forces. He hates that, though. We can't make fun of him like that. He could be anywhere right now. He could be anywhere. Sniper at your feet. Yep. All right, guys. Well, let's kick off this podcast. Really uh, excited to interview Kev, and uh, here we go. Later, George. Bye. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Phil Crafts Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today I got Kevin Owens in the studio. Is there a greeting that I should greet you in in Irish? No. There's not I one. can't remember it. A toodle pip. The toodle no, pip is one? that's English. That's English. Damn yeah. it. Close enough. Um, so I'm in the studio with Kevin. Uh, Kevin's been hanging out here. I think he, uh, he's, he's been staying on my couch for the last month, and uh, he, he has nothing better to do right now on leave um, from the U.S. Army than to uh, hang out with us, and we are um, grateful to have him in Prescott, Arizona. He just ran the first um, – it it's really not the first, but one of the first courses, civilian courses that you've ever helped uh, instruct, correct? Mm-hmm. correct? Yep. How was that, by the way? It was a little weird. No, it was good. It was good. Different, right? It was a little different than Army guys when you run uh, shooting classes for Army guys. They all show up with the same guns, same optics, same general background. So you, you have a good baseline and you know exactly where they're coming from. Uh, with civilians, you don't know what their background is. Some have MOA radicals. Some have different caliber rifles. So it's a little more challenging, but it, it was fun. Yeah, I thought it was really – I thought it was pretty challenging. I, I think um, – 
we had a lot of after action review stuff that we're reviewing and going into the next course will improve you know as as per sop kind of what we do is always improve the experience but you know kevin you have you have a, a myriad of experiences and in this podcast I didn't want to focus on sniper operations or long gun stuff because that's your forte, and we'll get to that a, a lot later. Um, but I wanted to kind of give people uh, the context and where you come from because, mm-hmm. you know, just like <laughs> before this experience, meaning that the, before Kevin came here, he had no social media. No. He wasn't on anything ever. And so literally walking him through – um, not only the processes on how you go through social media, but um, dealing with people who tend to troll. I didn't really want to start one, but my new boss is a bit of a dick, so I had to. <laughs> I've been called that before, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, but dealing with trolls who are who are kind of questioning who you are and oh, everything. Yeah. It, you know, that's normal, right? I, I would question. Um, I wouldn't articulate it the way this troll uh, communicated it. But to question somebody's experiences and background is what you should do, especially when you take training from a uh, special operations guy um, and you're getting training that's as important as tactical training that you might use to save your life. Or, or even you know, in long gun, PRS matches, hunting, and the list goes on. If you take training and you spend hard-earned money, you want to know the context and the experience of the person. So I want to get more into that. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've said this before, but let's start off in the very beginning because you started your army military career at a very young age. 18. 18 years Same old. you. Yeah. Well, you were 17, I think, weren't you? Yeah, I was 17. Yeah, yeah. I tried. So I, I was born in Ireland and grew up in Ireland in, in a fairly poor family. Um, grew up in, in a small house with 16 people in the same house. Uh, eight sisters and five brothers. I can't even remember. <laughs> There's 16 of us with parents and we were in a tiny house and, and the house to the left and right to us was uh, attached. So I can't imagine the noise that I feel sorry for the neighbors. Like years later, looking back, I'm like, oh my God, what must it have been like to be a neighbor attached? We had a little old lady on one side and we had a family on the other side. So I, I, I can't imagine the noise that came out of that house. Yeah. But people have said to me, oh, it must have sucked. And it doesn't because you don't know any different. That's your life, so you just drive on. Um, looking back now, it was a little challenging. And uh, going in the Army and living, you know, deployed with tons of people in the same room was no big deal to me because I grew up that way. We had uh, six boys in one room, eight girls in one room. Then my parents had a room. And, um, yeah, we didn't have a lot of money, so... Good. Well, did you live up in a, a, a more rural environment in Ireland versus, uh, you know, an urban mm. area? Uh, kind of neither. I, st- we, I grew up on a seaside resort type of thing, uh, fishing village type. Oh, okay. Typical yeah. midway between Dublin and Belfast on the East Coast. So it was about six miles, I think, south of the border, Northern Ireland border. So the whole IRA thing and the whole war against the British was very much in the forefront of everyday news. And like any... Uh, Even when you were a kid, huh? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Grew up with that. Hunger strikes and IRA funerals and IRA marches and all that stuff was a huge part of your life when you grew up. But it, again, it becomes a normal part. Bombs going off. When I was a, little, when I was a kid, about six, seven, maybe, I was coming home from school one day and there was a car bomb in my street that I, that I grew up in, right? And the, the police had it all cordoned off. 
and I, I can't remember what it was. It was probably Protestant terrorists from Northern Ireland putting a bomb in my hometown because my hometown was riddled with IRA because it was easy to live there, jump across the border, blow up bombs, shoot people, do your thing, and then jump back across the border. So we were coming home when I was a little kid, and, and uh, the whole street was cordoned off, and they were like, yeah, there's a big car bomb. And they wouldn't let us in. So me and my brother jumped over, went through the back fields and worked, through, worked our way through the back fields into our house. My mother was still in the house. Nobody told her to evac. She didn't even know. She didn't even know. She was just going on with her day. Explain for people who don't understand kind of the, um, uh, the, the issue that the IRA, the IRA and, the, and the British had going on during that time. Yeah, it's it's a complex issue. It goes back a long way, and a lot of Americans have asked me to articulate it. But basically, the British invaded Ireland and occupied it for like 900 years and uh, banned the Irish language and, and, and tried to make everybody forcibly convert to, to Protestantism from Catholicism. And um, it in They banned the Irish language? Yeah. The Gaelic? Yeah, Gaelic is still... It's very much a, a, a kind of background language. A lot of all the street signs you'll see over there in Gaelic, and if you want to work in, in like public servant, like a police or anything, you have to speak Gaelic. I learned it in school for years. A freaking difficult language to learn. Yeah. But uh, they're trying to revive it and keep, keep it alive because the British suppressed it for so long, and it's, it's part of the heritage. So, um, the, in the twenties, the, the IRA waged a war, you know, against. The British in the south, so the British pulled up into the six counties in the north, and Ireland became independent. And but the six counties in the north stayed under the British Empire. So if you look at a map, you have England, uh, Scotland, Wales, and then you have Northern Ireland. They're all part of the United Kingdom, and then the southern part of Ireland, Ireland is a republic. It's an independent state, and that's where I live. But had I been born six miles north of where I lived, I would have been I would have been English, basically, born in Northern Ireland. It's kind of weird. There's peace there now, but I, when I grew up, it was very, it was really, really bad for uh, for a couple of decades. And then in the mid '90s, peace treaty picked, you know, kicked in, and, and, and people kind of uh, saw a different path. And hopefully, if, if you if you maintain peace for long enough. You grow up with a generation of young kids who never knew violence, but uh, it, it's it's a little volatile, and it always has been. Uh, on top of the whole war to get the British Army out of Northern Ireland, there's the whole Catholic Protestant thing that that's a byproduct of it that's still bubbling under the surface. There's there's huge walls separating Catholics and Protestants in certain parts of Northern Ireland. And there's still a lot of hatred, and when they uh, when the peace treaty kicked in, the IRA actually never gave up their guns, sort of cash as guns. And with the whole Brexit thing, with, with uh, England pulling out of the, the European community, the uh, now Ireland, the Republic of Ireland is still part of the EU and um, the, the Euro thing, and, and England's not. So you have border crossing right there for smuggling. And there's a lot of talk right now about uh, the border checkpoints going back up. And if that happens, the guns will come back out. It's just a byproduct. And a lot of people are very nervous that it'll spiral back downhill the way it was. And it was awful when it was going on. We're, we're uh, you know, we're, we're the IRA when you were a kid looked at as heroes because of the fact that they kind of were the people. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, they're a designated terrorist organization, but, you know, they, they stood for an ideology that was supposedly beside the people instead. Yeah, this started as almost like a civil rights organization because people in Northern Ireland, Catholics in Northern Ireland were very downtrodden. And in the 70s, 
excuse me, in the 70s and 80s, like Catholics couldn't get jobs in Northern Ireland. They were very much second-class citizens. And the, the police were very biased against Catholics and very pro-Protestant. So they didn't put a lot of emphasis in police in Catholic areas. So the IRS stood up as almost like a police force within the Catholic neighborhoods to protect Catholics against the Protestant terrorist organizations and the police. Um, the British didn't handle it very well. They came in and they kind of policed Northern Ireland the way they policed a lot of their empire over the last hundreds and hundreds of years with an iron fist. And uh, that doesn't work in Europe, you know. So um, they were looked at as very much as heroes and saviors early on in Northern Ireland and, and still were throughout the whole history in Northern Ireland. In the south of Ireland, Catholics and Protestants live side by side and nobody cares. It's just that that volatile mix in Northern Ireland that that you know spurred a lot of violence, and then like Protestant terrorists would go, would go into a, a Catholic neighborhood and just murder the first person they see, and then Catholics would go into a Protestant neighborhood and just murder the first person. It was tit for tat, tit for tat for a long, long time, and a lot of innocent people died. Wow, that's an, I, I never knew that. Um, so when you when you were growing up in this environment, and obviously the the army in Ireland was combating um, and providing support for a lot of these operations. Um, and just like we had mentioned before, uh, Irish or Ireland, just like, um, you know, New Zealand, the Brits, the Australians, they don't have a, what is a posse commentatus where uh, they separate the military and domestic uh, counterterrorism or uh, even counter uh, criminal or against counter criminal organizations they use the military and their abilities um, their operational capabilities so when you were growing up in that was there a, a need to serve and then why did you join the the, the military what, what was the reason you did that it's actually quite a bit different than it is in America the, the need to serve and serve your country that was never a thing um, there's a lot of there was a lot of people in the 80s and, and that, that looked upon the the um, the Irish Army and the Republic of Ireland that I served in as kind of helping the British and helping Margaret Thatcher. And we used to do border patrols when I was in the infantry and, and we'd drive through the, the town. And if you drove through on a Saturday evening when people were coming out of the pubs, they'd throw bottles at you and call you Maggie Thatcher soldiers and stuff like that. Uh, nothing, nothing violent against it, but they, they didn't like that you were patrolling the border and doing checkpoints and stuff like that. Um, and you weren't really, you were, first of all, like, when I went into the infantry, it was, it was a lot different than, than the American Army. I went into my hometown. I enlisted in my hometown. I served in my hometown. I did basic training in my hometown. There wasn't one wow. central base wow. where you everybody went to basic training. Yeah. There, there, you went to... Uh, you went to basic training. I, I signed up for the Army when I came out of high school, and I was going to go to the French Foreign Legion, me and a buddy of mine, because there was no jobs. So you, you, you had a couple of options. You went to England to work, you went to America to work, or you went on the dole. And the Irish Army rarely back then, I don't know what it's like now, but they rarely recruited. They only recruited when they needed people. So the, uh, the local border unit I, I, I ended up serving, and they needed people, so they they recruited a platoon of soldiers, and I was one of those soldiers. So we went in. We did six months of basic training, I think four to six months or something. And uh, when I graduated, graduated on a Friday, showed up on a Monday and got in a vehicle and did 24-hour duty border patrol and did that for a couple of years. We did seven 24-hour duties a month 
So you would do, you know, 24 on, 24 off, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, and then the next week would be a normal 9 to 5, and then the next week would be Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And that's 24 or seven 24-hour duties a month will wear you out after a while. It, mm-hmm. it was tough. But during those patrols, it was mostly, you know, border checkpoints, searches, uh, you know, we, we were there to protect the police force who didn't have weapons, which is insane. But the, the police patrolling the border had no rifles, so had no weapons, so they, they took military everywhere they went with them. So, yeah, we operated domestically inside the country. When when uh, you were in the infantry, you knew that there was a counterterrorism unit, I'm assuming, the, the Army Ranger Wing. And did you decide consciously when you joined the military, like, that's something I want to aspire to be? Or, or was there a moment where you're like, these guys are different. This is something I want to do. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it when I because it's very – it's back then – it was very hush-hush, and I didn't know anything about it when I actually went into the infantry, but I was on there. I was an infantry kid, a private one day, and they pulled into the, the base. To, they were up there doing border operations. And when they pulled in, they went in to put their weapons in the uh, arms room, and they had H&K weapons, they had optics on them, they had 5.56 rifles, which I'd never seen before because we were carrying 7.62 FNFALs. Um, the body armor that we wore in the infantry was stuff from Vietnam. It was those flak vests. <laughs> they had badass, like, ranger body armor type stuff. They were all super fit looking. They were all super professional looking. They were all carrying handguns. And I was like, man, that's badass. I want to <laughs> be that. That's how it always works, Yeah, it? <laughs> it is. It is. It's fucking recruiting tool, right? I was like, I fucking want to do that. And it was funny because back then, and, and it's kind of the same, I guess not the same in America, but it was very difficult to go to selection because commanders didn't want to lose their best guys because that that type of job attracts the best soldiers you have right so um, commanders didn't want to lose them so you'd put in a packet to go to selection and get denied but they had a they had a recruiting pitch and they came by and at the end of it the the company star major um, was like hey if you put in a packet and you get denied you call me here on my cell phone or my personal number no cell phones back then but and i and they had a they had an agreement with the army headquarters that they could bypass every commander in, in the army and put you on orders to bring you into selection. So <clears throat> at, uh, I got denied and uh, made some phone calls and got accepted and went to selection um, after about two or three years in the infantry. How, what was the selection process like? I mean, overall, was it a, um, you know, a difficult undertaking? I know, I know you've told me some stories from that experience. Um, anything's different, difficult when you're that young, right? Yeah. But it was good. So you're 20, 21 years old? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, I'd already been in Lebanon for six months. I went on a UN peacekeeping tour in Lebanon as an infantry soldier, as a private. And we had a ranger guy who was attached because no no SF guys, Army Ranger Wing guys, went to Lebanon as a unit there. They got attached to the infantry as an infantry sar- uh, platoon sergeant or uh, what are you smiling at? Somebody I'm just wondering about Johnny Primo's on here. <laughs> is he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like nice hair hairstyle. He's got the same haircut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's what it is. Um, but the you didn't go to Lebanon as a as a soft guy. You went attached to the infantry. So when I went in 1987 to Lebanon, we had a, a squad leader attached to us that was from the Ranger Wing. Super professional, super aggressive guy, and he ended up being a really good friend of mine. So um, so I'd been down range. I'd, I'd I'd been to Lebanon. 
uh, before I went to saw. So I went to, so the union was stood up in 1980, I believe. And me and you were going to go to the reunion next year, like the 50th reunion wait. next year, right? Are we yeah. going to your hometown too? We will. We will. Is we'll. it like five minutes from from the union? No, no, it's like four hours. Is it? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, or at least it was when I lived there. I think the roads have improved since then. <laughs> yeah. Well, you um, can drive now. You don't have to take a horse and cart, right? You just yeah. There you go. <laughs> nice. That's all. Like this. This. Uh, what is this? This ignites working. Okay, you get one more. A uh, tea joke. I, 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 I'll do it later. It. I'll save the okay. timing for later. All I right. was going to go right. a Lucky Charms joke, but we'll save that one for later. That doesn't exist in Ireland. Well, it probably does now. There's no Lucky Charms in Ireland? There wasn't when I grew up. See, here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to work with the distributors and get Lucky Charms back on Irish shelves. There you go. You guys made that, right? Fuck no. That's American. <laughs> Never heard of corned beef and cabbage till I came to America. Never heard of Lucky Charms. What is the thing you're telling me about? There's like a a rubbing wall or some uh, some wall. The Blarney Stone. Yeah, what is that? that? That's for stupid American tourists. What is no Irish? It's it's some castle down the south where you you like hang back or something and kiss some rock. And if you hashtag that. Then it's like every American and every yeah. Westerner on the world yeah. doing that. You guys don't do that? Fuck no. Oh, come on, man. Come on. Drink beer. That's what we do. Chasing rainbows. That's what we do. Chasing rainbows. Where were we? Okay, um, so the unit yeah. was set up in 1980. Was it because... Uh, there's a theme, obviously, with 80 after the Iran hostage I, I think, situation. I think actually, and I may be wrong here, but I think it became a, a, a European community law that you had to have a counterterrorist unit okay. in your country. I yep. remember hearing that, and I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but if you remember... In the 70s, there was a lot of terrorism going on. There was aircraft, yeah, aircraft being yeah. hijacked and all that crap was going on. So it just made sense. And you're, you're dealing with a country that, um, of course, the, the Northern Ireland thing had kicked back up again, too, in the um, 60s and 70s. So it, it was a natural progression. Um, but the unit, when they were starting up, they had no idea what they were doing. So they sent a couple of officers over to America to go to ranger school. And... They brought that back, and actually, selection for me was very much based on the Ranger School POI, which it, is a big suck fest. Oh yeah, yeah, sleep deprivation, food, food deprivation. Yeah. But you weed out people who just don't want to be there or don't have that. Because you you can deal with anything in, in soft, can't deal with a quitter. You can't yeah. deal with a quitter. You know, um, you've got smart guys, you got freaking strong guys, you got all kinds of, and especially American Special Forces. Guys come in from the army and they bring a lot of skills. We got guys from every MOS in in uh, as Green Berets. But if you're a quitter, got no place for you, man. And how long was that that course total? You see, you're testing my memory now, but I think it seven, was seven, eight weeks. Nah, it was something like that. And we did a we did a garrison portion where like guys. I remember guys showed up had no idea what they were doing. Those guys showed up with a suitcase. And a suitcase is good for traveling to foreign countries. It's not so good when they put you through the obstacle course day one. And like that, within up being an hour there, they put us through the obstacle course. They smoked us. I think we got smoked for like 18 hours straight or something like that. Maybe it was 10, but it felt like 18. And uh, there was a lot of people quit the first day. Oh, so they, they, they already started attracting people, getting rid of yeah, people the first day. Yeah, they hammered us. I mean, you were talking during the week. We were a week into it, and they revealed that they had a plant they had a ranger instructor who was in there as a student. So he was going back every night saying, hey, this guy bitches and whines all the time, and he'd just be gone when you wake up in the morning. And that they used that to attract people as well. Oh. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder, you know, we're talking about um, we're, we're a little ahead of ourselves, but you went to Special Forces Assessment and Selection for the American Army, and we are wondering, like, is there moles? Is there embeds? And that's, 
you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't want to highlight it, but just think about that. That's that right there. How would you like to do that? Hey, dude. I need you to go in and just be smoked for a week undercover. Dude, I wouldn't mind doing that. You, you'd like it. I'd like it. Yeah. Because I'd, I'd totally be doing rapport with everybody. Yeah. They're like, you're that fucking Mike A. Glover off of fucking Instagram. I know, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm from the infantry. <laughs> All us <laughs> Koreans look the same. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that, you'd th- be like, hey, dude, let's sneak across the fence tonight and get some pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be fucking, awesome. Yeah, I re- I do remember people that were were pretty suspect, but I remember going into those like even Rainer School, thinking to myself that anybody here could be an embed, mm-hmm. which you know when you think about like the way you think psychologically, you don't even have to have an embed. Just the idea that there's yeah. an embed yeah. will make you act a certain yeah. way. Obviously, yeah. they had hidden cameras and listening devices and stuff going on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe I made it because. Yeah. Probably bitching like crazy, but what was the attrition rate when you guys started and then uh, wound up finishing? I think my course started with 88, and I think seven of us finished. No, maybe 10 finished, and seven or six actually got selected. Because when you finish that course, even if the unit said, Hey, you finished, you did well, but you're not what we're looking for, you got a ranger tab, which was in Gaelic. You got a ranger tab. You went back to your unit with a ranger tab, which was very, very rare. And um, oh, that's a Gaelic. Uh, yeah. I have one. Finoglock. Uh, our yeah. buddy yeah. Mike Mick gave Mick, me one. Yeah, yeah. They, they, the guys who go to the sniper comps now for soft are all ranger wing guys, and they do very well. They've evolved the snipers phenomenally, and they're really, really talented shooters. The um, but you could you could pass, not get selected, get a ranger tab, and go back to your unit, and you'd be a fucking walk on water guy. Or you got invited to come into the unit and then go through like the skills course and the qualification course. Yeah, I remember you talking about the way that uh, you guys kind of selected your jobs or they selected you for jobs. But there's different jobs, right? Like breacher and sniper. Yeah, there was. There was a, uh, I, they were like, hey, who wants to be a diver? And when I was in Lebanon in, in 87, I went on leave in Cyprus and I dived in, in, in Cyprus, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And I was like, man, that shit's awesome. I'm going to be a diver. And then they took us out to this local lake as, as a, like a test, like a pre, pre, pre-scuba test. And um, dirty, nasty water with dead cats in it and cold and miserable. I was like, fuck this. I'm not doing this. I'm going to be a sniper. <laughs> I'll be a sniper. And then it was cold and nasty and miserable yeah. being a sniper too. Because when you live in a country that rains all the time, it, it, everything... It's cold and wet and nasty. So how, you know, when you look at where you were in the ranger wing and they, you become a sniper, what's the training like as a, as a long gun guy back then? So the other thing that's different between the American Army and, and here is there are, and, and this is 30 freaking years ago, so it's all changed now. So don't freaking hit me up and say, it's not like that anymore. I get it. But back then, a lot of the institutional knowledge and a lot of the unit training was done by unit members. So they would say, hey, we need more snipers. So they'd run a sniper course. I think mine was five weeks, but they'd run a sniper course internally. It would be all resourced internally. uh, And the instructors would all be ranger snipers. It wasn't like you you went to an army sniper school. At the time, I probably could have, but I didn't. I went to a unit training sniper school. And snipers in that unit at the time had two different roles. They had like what they call a green roll and a black roll. The green roll was conventional sniper, um, ghillie suit, you know, conventional warfare, special operations behind the line sniper with a bolt action 308 Accuracy International at the time. The um, the black roll was more, excuse me, the black roll was more kind of 
the counter terrorist black gear we we used hk uh sg ones at the time and that was more like like what we would call urban sniper you know a couple of hundred three hundred three four hundred meters in close gas guns and it was overwatch for you know visiting dignitaries and and you know stuff like that for for overwatching an assault force basically does that make sense yeah 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 so uh when you're training up like that uh, you make a decision to get out uh, after you developed and grew up in this organization, and you did a couple deployments, and and you're still young. Yep. I mean, you're super young still. What what made you get out, and then what'd you do after you get out? <laughs> I um, <clears throat> me and a buddy of mine started a survival company, but when I was like twenty, shit, I shit you Phil not, man. Crest Survival. No, <laughs> no, no. It, yeah. It, so you were, you told me this a decade ago. It's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, I gotta get you. To I, that's the idea. I stole your idea. Yeah. <laughs> Copyright infringement. Yeah, yeah. But the the, the, uh, the the problem we have that you don't have is we had no social media and we had no way to market, but we we marketed as we. Because of the Northern Ireland thing, which was still going on heavy, you're talking 92 now at this point, um, you couldn't market yourself as a soft guy. It was super hush-hush. So uh, we, we, we tried to market ourselves as, as well as we could. We, we taught rock climbing, you know, rappelling. We did some survival training. We did some land navigation, orienteering, stuff like that. And it was only ever meant to be like one group a month type thing, just to supplement income and do something fun. But at the time, the unit commander got a case of the ass and said, if you're going to do that, you got to get out of the unit. So we didn't want to give it up. So, And at the time, I almost, I, I was getting a little antsy. I wanted to see something different. And I'd, I'd almost done most of what I could have done there. And I wanted to move on. I was kind of looking for a way out anyway, if I'm going to be honest with myself. So I was like, ah, fuck it, I'm just going to get out of the army. So... You could back then buy yourself out of the army. I don't know what it's like now. So you say, I want to get out, even though I I, I, re, I enlisted for three years, re-enlisted for three more, re-enlisted for three more. And after one year, I said, I want to buy myself out. So I was seven years in there total. And what the army did, they look at how much they paid to train you and they bill you, basically. But based on training too. Based like, on training. So sniper school would have been a bracket of money that you have to pay back. Actually, for that training? sniper school was nothing because it was only training that you could use on the outside. So if I'd have been a cook and they sent me to culinary art school, thousands of dollars. Ooh. Repelling down walls and shooting people and putting breaches on doors and parachuting yeah. and sniping, don't give a fuck. Free. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think I paid like a grand or something. It wasn't much, and I was gone in six weeks out of the army. That's got to be a big deal for the a ranger wing counterterrorism unit to lose guys, yeah. Because you're giving them a hard, you know, the command is giving guys a hard time for yeah. trying to make a living. It actually, went all the way up to army headquarters, and they were like, "Why is two rangers leaving at the same time?" There was a big deal made yeah. about it because it was unheard of, you know. Um, and I understand the feeling of reg- uh, the instant feeling of regret I, I felt at the time. Yeah. I remember being in tears leaving that unit. I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it more now because I, I've, I understand that that loss of sense of purpose and all that that you've talked about with PTSD and all that, it makes a whole yeah. lot more sense now. You, you, you basically transitioned completely out went through that whole process yep. back then. Yep, I did. Wow. Yeah, and I instantly regretted it and I lost all my buddies and I lost all my friends who have reconnected with a lot of those guys now but... Um, 
it was a kick in the balls, man. I'm not going to lie. It was like, oh my fucking God, what am I going to do now? Yeah. And we started, we kept running that business, but it just got less and less and less. And I ended up driving a taxi and doing all kinds of bullshit jobs. And I was yeah. like, this fucking sucks, man. And I yeah. was like, what the? I didn't know how good I had it at the time. But now I look back years and years, decades later, and I'm like, best, best thing I ever did because it moved me out and it gave me the kick in the ass I needed to go find, move to America and start again. Was the, was the, uh, was the actual pay decent? Was that a good job considered? In, in it, the it was considering the unemployment rate. Yeah. It was brutal. Yeah. So it was a decent job. Yeah, It, it was, was secure, obviously. It was secure, which yeah. is a huge deal when you when you, you grow, up, grow up in an economy like that. It was secure and it was fun, right? It was, we did, um, we did a lot of cool things. Uh, where else would you get to do parachuting and diving and sniping? And then we did border operations and we did, we did a lot of cool stuff. So, Compared to most of the jobs at that time, it was a pretty cool job. And and again, the guys in the unit, you could pick any one of those guys up and you could transplant them into, into an ODA in, in Green Berets right now and they'd fit right in. Yeah. Same type of guy. Exactly. And it's probably, that's probably true for most soft units around the world. It attracts a certain type of guy that you could you could just move them from country to country and they'd fit right in, man. Same type of sense of humor and everything. So what did you do when you got, when you made the transition and you seemingly ran away from Ireland. Like you left, right? Cause you went on this thing where you went across the world and you're going to different places and then you go to Somalia. Wow. Were you running? I was, I, mean, yeah. I was, yeah. It was funny because I sold my car and I got a couple of grand and I bought a Eurail pass and I packed a backpack and I went back, you know, for those that don't know, you can buy one rail ticket in Europe and it basically gives you unlimited travel by rail anywhere you want in anywhere europe. in europe you want for a month or, or six weeks i think i went for six weeks so you could literally be in paris and sit and what i used to do this is what i used to go to um the rail station and look at where the trains were going and i'd be like fuck it i'll go to frankfurt and then jump on a train and go to frankfurt and then sometimes i didn't want to pay to sleep somewhere so i'd look where there's a train going to somewhere and it would take like five hours to get there and five hours to get back and I'd just fucking sleep, sleep on the train, train and wake up the next day in the same place. It was actually pretty cool. And people were fucking with me at the time. They're like, oh, you're going to find yourself, you know? But I kind of was, you know? Yeah. It, 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 was, it was a blow. So I was trying to figure shit out. So I just bummed around Europe and met a lot of people and saw a lot of sites. It's actually pretty cool. I, I think there's something to be said about that. It's almost, it, wolves actually do it, but there's something that is in us when we lose something to go away and mm -hmm. whether that's a journey or adventure or travel or exploration or new experiences we just kind of go mm -hmm. and it's part of like a therapeutic experience because typically you do find yourself you do figure out more about yourself uh in hindsight than um you were before you know where mm -hmm. you know you're lost but then you start moving and then you start to discover yourself and then you did this for a period of time, right? How many how many years did you do that for? Well, I was out. Well, I was. Uh, I got out in '92, I think, summer, and then I traveled all over Europe, and that was like six weeks. Uh, and then I came back, and, and I screwed around, screwed around. And then my brother had a, a construction company in in New York, so I got on a plane and went to New York. And I, I didn't have a green card or nothing, so I'm gonna go to jail after this. But I, I you can fly in on on a. Uh, 
holiday visa for three months. So I flew in on a holiday visa for three months, stayed with my brother, worked construction, did all kinds of shit for about a year. So I was an illegal immigrant for about a year. That's awesome. Yeah. What, it, what, it, what was your experience with America? I know you grew up and you said you used to watch Western mm-hmm. uh, TV mm-hmm. and radio and everything. So you come to New York. What, what did that feel like when you're rolling well, in New York? You know, it, it, it's a... Uh, it's a culture shock because you land in JFK, which is a massive city, obviously New York City, and you come in and you're like, oh, my God, pretty blown away by um, by the size and scope of America. It really is. For an immigrant coming in that's never been – I'd been outside Ireland, but I'd been to Lebanon and, and Israel and a few places like that. But it, it was – difficult to wrap your head around when when you're that young and you come into the states and you've never seen the states before it was pretty awesome so you you start painting and doing this is after the somalia oh shit i forgot about that yeah damn so you contracted for a period of time before that right oh no actually i'm I'm chronologically i'm right so i worked in the states for about a year and then my mother got sick she got cancer so i had to go home and because i overstayed my holiday visa there was no way i was ever getting back in the states Mm illegally like that there's no way they did they'd never have given me another visa so i went home and i screwed around for a little while while my mother died of cancer which took months which was awful and at that point i think i hit a very very low point in my life i i i, I couldn't go back to the states i didn't have a job i don't know what the fucking do i was looking at the french foreign legion again i was like seriously looking at it um and then a buddy of mine from the ranger wing offered me a job in africa in somalia and this would have been, so Black Hawk Down was October 93, and this was f- when I had offered a job. It was probably January 94, so it was just a couple of months afterwards. And he offered me a job, and he just told me security work, and I, I, I jumped on it. I would have went for free. If they had said, hey, you can take this job in Africa and we can't pay you, I, I would have jumped on it. Because at that point, I needed something to pull me out of a hole and uh, give me a new sense of purpose. So I got on a plane in february 94 i think and flew dublin to london london to nairobi and then nairobi on a u.n flight into mogadishu somalia and i spent almost nine months in somalia in the craziest fucking place i've ever been in my life it was literally like a post-apocalyptic world with no rules exactly how it is today <laughs> yeah it, it hasn't, hasn't evolved changed. it's probably gotten worse yeah yeah so how was that overall experience for you i mean what 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 did your experiences prior to going to that place prepare you for that experience and and then what did you take away from that well i yeah because i i'd, I'd spent seven years in the army in ireland so and, and i'd done a lot of training i was very well trained for it like I said, I got there and I really didn't know what I was going to do until the two Brits, two SAS guys met me at the airport and handed me an AK-47 and a pistol belt. And we jumped in, in, a, in a vehicle and drove into downtown Mogadishu. And there was dead people on the side of the street and everything and, and, and just crazy poverty, but crazy, um, just no rules. We were driving up on the sidewalk and running into people and all kinds of shit trying to get back to our base. The um, I'd been trained... Uh, technically proficient in shooting and moving and all that, th- those military skills, but mentally prepared for, for a place that fucked up, it, it was crazy. And uh, I, I got a million stories that are, I, I can't go in down the rabbit hole unless you want me to, but we, we, we've that's a whole other podcast about Mogadishu. Yeah, I like to talk about those experiences sometime because, you know, the international... One, we're getting into overland training. We're going to have overlandtraining.com, but you're going to be teaching some of the stuff in that called safe travel. 
but you know, crossing different borders and uh, dealing with countries that have lost their sovereign status because their governments are just falling apart uh, and they're in utter chaos is a completely different experience. And just uh, there's going to be a plethora of knowledge coming from that as well. Yeah. One, one thing that one of the Brits said to me early on when I hit Somalia, he said, hey, in this place, if you look like you know what you're doing and you're aggressive, a lot of times people won't fuck with you. And it turned out later on, uh, we, long story, but we moved out of the house we lived in. We moved to a smaller facility and we got rid of a lot of the guards. Like we had 50 staff working for us at one point. Most of them were security personnel. And we laid a lot of them off as we downsized. We found out through intel operations later on that they were going to attack our base and kill us and for money because um, they knew we had a lot of cash. But when they had the meeting to do this, somebody stepped up and said, they're soldiers, they will fucking kill you. Don't fuck with these guys, you yeah. know what I mean? So there was a lot of truth in what he had said. Yeah, because you were with a hodgepodge of guys that had good experience yeah. in war and yep. counterterrorism. Yeah, I, I was with British guys that had been in the Falklands War and SAS guys who operated in Northern Ireland. And the we had a lot of indige working for us, but they were indige from uh, General Ideed's clan that owned most of Mogadishu at the time. And we paid them. And, and Somalis are loyal as long as you're paying them. Yeah. And as soon as it becomes more profitable to kidnap you, then they'll fucking they'll kill you in a heart. I yeah. remember driving through Mogadishu and I'd be, the driver would be a Somali who's from that clan because that's how you get through Mogadishu. And that's the only way you get through. And I'd be behind them with a, a MP5 or a Galil stuck out the window to, to shoot people. But I'd have my pistol at the ready to shoot the driver in the back of the head as soon as he takes a wrong turn because that means he's kidnapping you. It was crazy. And I, back then, I was, I was a little bit of a wild card. So I was okay with it, man. It was awesome. I loved it. I don't think that's changed at all. <laughs> 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 I'm just a more experienced wild card. Yeah. Um, so uh, so you, get to, you get to the point where you're coming to America to join the U.S. Army. How mm -hmm. the hell does that happen? So after uh, the Mogadishu mission wrapped up, we all kind of started downsizing and downsizing. The, the, the mission was over. The UN were like, we can't fucking help these people. We're done. So started pulling people out, pulling people out. So I, uh, I went back to Ireland. And before I went, I'd applied for a, a lottery for a green card for America. It was a program started by Irish-American politicians where they would raffle uh, green cards basically to poor countries. And uh, Ireland got so many. England got so many, a lot, you know. And I got one. Somalia I, wasn't getting it. Somalia didn't get jack shit. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, got a, I got a green card, but it had come through while I was in Somalia. So I'd missed the, the cutoff. So, what? Yeah. Did you even know about it? No. Oh. Didn't, didn't know about it, right? So How'd that home, feel? Though, wow. <laughs> so I went up to the embassy in Dublin, and I told them I was doing humanitarian work in Africa. And uh, I missed it. And they, they let me have it. They, they let me do the whole thing, and I got my green card. Oh, really? Yeah, that's how I got it. So you, because they, they, you know, it was basically a hardship. You were out there fighting, doing yeah, stuff. Yeah, I told them I was doing humanitarian stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I kind of was. You kind of was. Sort of, <laughs> For yeah. the rest of the world, you're yeah, doing humanitarian. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it, this is basically the, the immigration lo lottery. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. and so how does the process work, and how do you get to actually the U.S.? Um, I, had, I had to go up a couple of times. I had to do interviews and some stuff, but I basically got a, a, a green card and was allowed to work and live in the U.S. So I... Oh, this is where you painted houses a little this bit, This right? is, yeah. Well, I'd done it before as a legal immigrant, but yeah. I, I, I went back again. They knew I was a legal immigrant and all that, but they, they were good. I think I had to pay some fines uh, because I'd overstayed my visa at the time, but... 
Oh, because of the last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, but that was, was, yeah, no big deal. It, I had loads of money. Because you're a contractor just, rich. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thousand Air Club. I had that money burned home in my pocket anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you get to the uh, U.S. and then you're doing some some jobs. And then you decide you want to join the army. Like, what is that? How how does that come about? Yeah, I just I was working construction. I was making good money, and I was just bored. You know, after you've done all the things I did in the ranger wing, it's hard to fucking paint walls every day. It's fucking tough. Yeah, and I, you know, sanding shit down, and 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 I was making good money, but money is not a huge fucking motivator for me, and never has been. I I, I just want to not hit my job. So you're you're talking now ninety six. And I was like, I'm going to the American Army. Those fuckers are always fighting with somebody. And they'd just come out of Somalia, and the Gulf War had been on, you know, a couple of years before. So I went in. I was a recruiter's dream. I went in and said, I just want to go in the infantry. And they were like, okay, no problem. Come back at this time. I didn't get rank. People were like, oh, because of your background, did you get rank? I was like, yes, I did. Private E1. Came in private E1 in really? the infantry. Yep, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know you could get rank. I don't know. So you're you're a former tier one operator, yeah. sniper, counterterrorism, yep. mm-hmm. combat veteran, mm-hmm. and you go and you're a private E one. Private E one <laughs> means to an end, man. I was just, I was just checking a box to move to to go, you know, to to get to a certain point. So I just sucked it up. Yeah. Start all over again and suck it up. How was that basic training experience? So I was like, I'm just going to keep a low profile and nobody will know. And fucking that shit didn't work. As soon as I started talking, they're like, where the fuck you from, you know? <laughs> I, I remember the drill sergeant said, where are you? Oh, he said, if you have prior military experience, write it down. I was like, American military or any military? So like, where did you serve? I said, in the Irish Army. He said, I could beat them with my big toe. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, it was but that, cool. The, the uh, but it was out. The cat was out of the bag. Yeah, then, you right? know when you do drill and ceremony and you've done it before, and they, they look at you. And I was older. Right? I was like twenty nine, and uh, everybody else was eighteen, so they were all children, and I was an adult, and yeah. they could see. And and so they they put me in charge of the platoon, and then the whole company, and they, all the drill sergeants go home. On the weekend and leave me in charge with rude instructions. Drill Sergeant Owens, yeah, he's got yeah. this. Yeah, I was fucking smoking people. They, I remember we were, uh, I, like the first morning I was in charge, I woke everybody up at six o'clock, let's say. I can't remember the exact times. And uh, we cleaned the fuck out of the whole bay. You know, man, you were there. And the drill sergeants come in, wreck it to be like, oh, it was on sat, right? And I'm like, okay, next day, 5.30. And we clean and clean and clean. They come in, wreck it again. Next day, five o'clock. I remember I put the lights on and people were rolling out of bed. They're like, and one, one kid w- was walking past me. He was like, this motherfucker's still on Irish time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I know we went to the field. When we went to the field, I, I would, uh, we'd have different patrol bases for different platoons. And I would sneak out. I'd be like, hey, drill sergeant, can I go probe the other patrol base? And uh, he'd be like, yeah, go ahead. And he'd wake up the next morning and have a stack of weapons <laughs> stockpiled outside. I'd go into the air patrol base and steal all their guns. But it was like taking guns from children because with my background and they knew nothing, the, um, it, it really wasn't very difficult. So he, I remember the drill sergeant woke up one morning, come out of his hooch, and he was like, platoon guide, stop stealing guns. You know, <laughs> it, it, was, it was pretty cool. They actually, believe it or not, never smoked me once in basic training by myself. 
I got smoked when everybody else got smoked as a group because they're building that camaraderie. But me personally, I, I don't remember once ever getting smoked. And they used to be doing this stupid fucking low crawling shit that, that, and I'd be over talking to the drill sergeant because some of them had been in Somalia and they were super interested in my background. So they'd pull me over there and we'd just be sitting bullshitting for like hours while awesome. everybody else was fucking low crawling. <laughs> yeah, it was. They're probably was, older than most of the drill sergeants. I was, and I had combat yeah. experience, and most of them didn't have any. Back yeah. then, the, the American military didn't have a lot of combat experience. So I had combat experience at that time. And um, yeah, they, they were super interested. It was actually pretty cool for me. Hey, George, welcome back to the mid-roll, man. Hey, Mike. Um, yeah, good to have you back on here, but you're not going to be able to talk much, so just hold, hold it down a little bit. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> hey, guys, I want to talk to you guys about a new game that I'm playing. It's called War Dragons. This is a sponsored ad. And what I want to talk to you about is the fact that we are sponsored by War Dragons. War Dragons is a 3D real-time strategy video game that you can play right on your cell phone. It's a mobile game. Over 150 different dragons breed collect, each with different styles, abilities, and classes. Um, if you're a video game nerd like I am, you'll you'll pay attention to things like it has spectacular 3D graphics, and the game was built on the Mantis engine. If you know what the Mantis engine, you're getting excited right now because it's a proprietary 3D, 3D game engine featuring state-of-the-art graphics and cinematics. Experience mobile games like you'd never have before with uh, the ability to visually explore all facets of the stunning world. Also, there's a new promotion going on with War Dragons where War Dragons will match all donations made through the link in the game between July 4th and July 31st for a max 10K uh, donation as well as the ability to uh, add another $10,000 by donating, uh, breeding your dragons in-game will also contribute to this, uh, this pot. So you'll get actually the opportunity to do both. And the only thing you have to do, if you go to podcast.wardragons.com slash fieldcraft, again, that's podcast.wardragons.com slash fieldcraft. And I'll put this in the notes. I'll make sure I articulate this in the notes so you can click the hyperlink in order to do this. But again, War Dragons will match all donations made through the link in the game between July 4th and uh, July 31st, up to a max of $10,000. Hey, I appreciate you guys tuning in to the mid-roll. George, let's kick the podcast back off. All right. You know, I thought it was uh, kind of interesting because you went to airborne school and ranger school prior to becoming a U.S. Army infantryman. Yeah, and, and free fall school. There's, mm -hmm. there's some, and free fall school, and there's some... Uh, translation of that, depending on the country that you come from. I mean, nobody. There's not a lot of Irish Army Ranger Wing guys, mm -hmm. but I know like the Brits uh, that come to the American military. Mm -hmm. They have conversion programs, I guess. To yeah, to I, I, so I had jump wings from the Irish Army. I couldn't wear them because there was guys in my unit that had Irish Army jump wings that they were wearing, and I couldn't wear them. I'd yeah. been to school because they jumped as part of uh, the same way you get any. Foreign, foreign jump foreign wings. Jump wings. Yeah. They jump with American jump masters and they got them that way. And there was no translation for me to wear a ranger tab or wear jump wings or free fall wings it's or crazy. sniper badge or yeah. any of that. And I didn't really care. I was like, yeah. but because I was older and because I was more mature than most, I made rank very, very quickly. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I think I've actually done. I think I got Irish jump wings. Probably. Oh, it's so easy, right? For the American military, you, yeah, you just it, jump with the air, them in the aircraft. And yeah, then it's, it's like, done. Just eject the box, I got like man. 15 different foreign jump yeah, wings. Yeah. Um, you know what I think is uh, interesting is, you know, you're in the infantry and you're coming up. And I didn't even realize this, but you were in Kosovo. Uh, I was. Yeah. Early on. Yeah. Well, before that, I was in Kuwait. When I was there, 
private first class. I was in Fort Hood. We went to Kuwait for four months as part of... In, in Neil says, how did you get through basic training uh, without your tea 10 times a day? Neil? <laughs> yeah. I drank tea in the chow hall. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Neil. Oh, man. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. You're, so, you, so I went to Kuwait, Kuwait for yeah. four months as part of this intrinsic action thing to, to deter Iraqi aggression after Gulf War. And when we got a new platoon sergeant, I was a PFC, I was a nobody, and I could speak some Arabic because I spent a year in Lebanon, mm -hmm. two different And tours. then you were in Somalia. In Lebanon, yeah. yeah, and I could speak quite a bit of Arabic, like combat Arabic, like we, we, yeah. we, we've used many times in, in, with the Iraqis. But this, uh, I got this new platoon sergeant, and he was like, I want everybody to write a bio of what they've done because he didn't know anybody. I was like, fuck it, I'll, I'll second this guy. So I wrote my whole fucking bio. And instead of being like, fuck this guy, he was like, why is this guy not in a leadership position? So as a PFC, they frocked me to the rank of corporals, pin corporal stripes on me, which is totally illegal. They frocked you from PFC to corporal. Yeah. Wow. And put, made me a uh, yeah. team leader. I'm not surprised, though. That's actually yeah. squared away. It is. That. It was a smart thing and, to do. And totally available at the time. You could yeah. frock any rank uh, in leadership, but typically it was E4, obviously. Could you? you we, I don't ever heard of a PFC getting frocked, but E4, it was frocking. I went, I was, went to... Uh, NCO of the quarter board later on, and uh, there was seven star majors. There was a division level, and my squad leader was introducing me, and he told them that, and they were like, can they do that? That's illegal, you know? <laughs> I, I think it was just fake, because I got pinned corporal yeah. stripes yeah. at the lake one weekend at a, at a barbecue. You yeah. know, I don't think it was legal at all, yeah. but there was a freeze on E4 promotions back then, so... By the time, this is the Clinton War. This is what, you're 95, 94? No, it's, I came in 97. Oh, 97. Yeah, there That's was when a I went freeze in, yeah. on E4 promotions at that time. Uh, yeah, yep. I remember. And um, it was money. It was the Clinton Army, right? So if because when, when a waiver came down for like one E4 promotion, even though there was a bunch of E4s that were specialists that were ahead of me in the list, I was already wearing corporal stripes, so they, they I jumped over everybody and, and got E4 way ahead of everybody else yeah. because I was already wearing the stripes. But I went down, I went to Kuwait as, as, a, as a team leader in the infantry, and it, it, was, a, it was a good experience. Uh, I got to see Kuwait and stuff like that, but it was a suck fest, man. We, we landed in Kuwait. We drove vehicles, and we went out in the desert for four months straight. Set up a tent. In the summer. Yeah. Balls hot. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So then um, did that, and then I went to Kosovo in the infantry in 99. We rolled in there when, when there was all this stuff going on with the Serbs and the Albanians. And uh, the my platoon leader was actually Nate Self, who went on to be the platoon leader on Roberts Ridge later on. Rockstar, man, super yeah. squared away a guy. Third Ranger Battalion, PL yep. on that. Yep. Helicopter. PL on, yep. the, on the Roberts Ridge, Roberts Ridge mission. And four of his guys got jacked up coming off the off the thing, but he was he was a rock star. Like yeah, he was super squared away. For 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 those that don't understand, kind of how that chronologically works out. When when you're an officer in Ranger Regiment, before you could serve as a platoon leader in Ranger Regiment, you have to have platoon leader time in the regular army. Yeah, and, you and you're handpicked, and you're handpicked. Yeah, so yeah. you'll do your time, you'll get evaluated, yep. and then they'll handpick you to serve in the Ranger the Regiment. Cream of the crop. Yep. Yeah, the best. Mm -hmm. And so you're you actually have an interesting. You know what? You should do that uh, post to, to talk about this podcast. Do the post of when you were on the cover of Stars oh, and yeah, Stripes, yeah, which is yeah. really, I mean, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So you, you guys get called out for an op or something like that for a Q mm -hmm. or F. Can you tell that story? Because that's a really interesting story about the guy. It's in the book that Nate Self writes. Yeah. What's that book called, by the way? 
two wars. Two wars. Yeah, because Nate had problems with PTSD back when it was so early on in the war and terror that, that nobody knew how to deal with it. And he struggled quite a bit later on. And, and, and thankfully, I talked to him a while ago and he's doing so much better right now. But he ended up getting out of the army. But yeah, we, we had a, an Albanian training camp, a terrorist training camp in Kosovo operating, attacking Serbs. And we, we did a lot of reconnaissance and intel stuff, and we ended up raiding that camp. And it was it was like a it was like a, a pre stage for Albanian terrorists coming in to kill everybody, every Serb in Kosovo. And they had uniform stockpiled grenades, ammunition, weapons. They had ranges, bunks, and everything. And, and it's, Nate Self lays it out very very well in that book, but. Um, and they, you get a copy of this, this Stars and Stripes. Yeah, You're like yeah. holding an M9 pistol about to assault a bunker. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my, my squad hit it, and I had a freaking big-ass M16. So I was like, I'm not carrying this big-ass gun. So I pulled my pistol, and we, as we read it, and there was a Stars and Stripes reporter on scene with us, and he took a picture of me, and he ended up putting it on the front seat and front page of the Stars and Stripes newspaper. That's so uh, crazy, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnny Primo says, uh, here's what he says. What does he say? He says, Mike, please tell Kevin this. As a former third herd stud, I appreciate you. He called himself a stud. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your story is amazing, and your legend at range 37 and in group won a hand job. It, he said that? I think, I think that's rapport building. There's like something there about handies. It says handy, but I'm assuming that means hand job, unless that's like a co- covert word for like, some rapport building, something like that. You know, my daughter's listening to this, right? <laughs> no, she's not listening to this. We'll tell her to not listen to this. Okay. Um, so, like I said earlier, you could take that fucker right there and drop him into the range wing in Ireland, and he would fucking fit right in. Yeah. All the same type of guy. Yeah. Same type of weirdo humor. Yeah. When I noticed that with Nick and the guys, yeah. before I even knew yep. we built rapport with them, yep. I was like, dude, this dude's, these guys are so cool. Yep. They, they beat us in the, in that comp that they yeah, believe that yeah. year. Uh, they play second, right? They uh, used to suck comp. I yeah. can't remember. I, they were up there. When I yeah. when I won the international, they were second. Nick was second, yeah. Those guys, yeah. They, they bring it, man. They're really good shooters. And you know what's crazy? And you know what is the, the Iraqi counter-terrorist force? Yeah. Those fuckers looked like Americans after a while. They I had know, ball man. caps and dip, and they were yeah. talking shit to the each other. The way they move, the way yeah, they operate. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart from... from um, Americans, which is fucking crazy, you know? Yeah. So you, uh, you're in, I mean, you, you, you accumulate all this experience, and then at some point, you got to tell your chain of command in the regular army, you're like, I'm going to be an SF guy. Mm-hmm. It, was that part of the plan the entire time? Uh, I, I the, couldn't the go because I joined the army with a green card. Oh, that's they right. They wouldn't get, let me go to SF because I didn't have a security clearance. Mm. So I had to bide my time in the infantry for a couple of years. But you knew you, this was the plan all Yeah, along. I'd already yeah. had to pack it in, yeah. but they're like, we can't let you go until you have a security clearance. And you can't get a clearance until you're an American citizen, which I get it. Yeah. So uh, 9-11... Right after 9-11, I got word that I had to, I was in Germany, I was stationed in Germany, I had to come back to America to a port of entry and I picked New York. So I had to go to New York for an interview and the way it worked back then, I, I have no idea how it works now, you had to come back and do an interview and then they processed all your paperwork and then you had to come back like months later and swear in. So when I was prepping my shit, there was a Colombian guy in my unit was like, go in uniform and I tell them you need to do it all right there and then. And it was right after 9-11, and it was right around the corner from Ground Zero. So I flew over, and I got in, you know, I got in Class A's, 
and stay with my brother. And when I was standing in the line outside immigration in, in New York City, which, as you can imagine, was a massive line there, the uh, the security guard saw me from like, you know, 300 feet away and he walked on. He said, sir, can I see your ID? And I showed him my ID. He said, you're a federal employee. You don't stand in this line. He brought me up and brought me in the side door, which was super cool. And then they brought me upstairs and they put me to the front of the list. And I went in, did all my paperwork, swore in, and I was out of there in a couple of hours. It was awesome. Wow. And it, it, there was that fever of post 9-11 you know, U.S. military thing, you know, they were all into it back then. And I flew back to Germany, dropped my packet. So you flew in uh, an immigrant, you flew out an American I did. citizen. I flew out an American citizen like a couple of days later. So That's it crazy. Was awesome. It was awesome. So it, it, what's even crazier is there's a there was a kid in the range wing. He wasn't there when I was there, but I went back. When I was a sniper instructor at Range 37, I went back to Ireland to go through a con an international counter-terrorist sniper course at my old unit. And I'm in the American Army, any seven the American Army sniper instructor, right? But there was a kid in that course who had an American girlfriend and he was asking me how I did what I did. And I told him my whole process and I had to spend a couple of years in the in, in the infantry and all that. So he came over, got his green card through marriage came over, went into the American Army, signed up for uh, infantry. But while he was in basic training, the SF recruiters came, got his story. By the time he graduated basic training, he was a U.S. citizen, 18 X-ray on the course. He went through the course, 18 Delta, honor grad on the 18 Delta course, like 2-2 in Arabic, freaking he's in our old unit right now. That's and, crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's super squared away kids, highly intelligent, super yeah. motivated, but he has all this training behind him. It just makes sense for the American military to do that for certain guys. That's what that's what we need, you know. Like when you look at the yeah. uh, the immigration process, mm -hmm. it's it's like my whole thing is you want an accelerated uh, way to become a citizen, an accelerated yeah. path. Yeah, you join the military, serve. serve in the military, serve in the military, and and I, I think obviously it's not always true, but you get you get immigrants to come in to, to the United States and are willing to serve in the military and, and do that, they appreciate America. They really, because they didn't grow up here. They grew up somewhere worse, because everywhere's worse. And yeah. they come in here and they really appreciate what America brings to the table, and they become solid citizens. Yeah, I think um, what's impactful about the, kind of like your story is you started out in service. You, mm -hmm. know, you started out in service of the country, so it almost like brings everything together. And we talked about this before, but some serving of some capacity is important for you to kind of have appreciate nationalism or patriotism in your country. Because if you yeah. don't, if you don't have that, and then you you grow up in a you know uh, uh, you know liberal situation where mm -hmm. you know people down talk the country, then you're going to be bred that way. You're going to grow up into the real world, not understanding how important it is that we have all the freedoms that we have. Yeah, I, I think service is important. It's like a trust fund kid, man. They don't they don't understand the value of money, you know, until until they've had to earn it themselves. So service is earning it. It's earning citizenship. So you, you you're in the army and they give you the green light because of your citizenship to go mm -hmm. SF and I'm assuming you put it in the packet, the packet was submitted and you're ready to go. You go you go to SFAS mm -hmm. and then uh, how was that experience for you? When when you look at your experience and selection in the Ranger Wing, was it mm -hmm. was it a breeze for you? I think it, it, it. I don't want to say it was easy. It's tough for anybody, but I think because I was older and more mature, and I'd already been through it once, kind of knew what to expect, and I knew 
There's nothing they could do to me to make me quit. Just absolutely wasn't going to happen. I had nowhere else to go, number one. I, there's no way I was going back to the infantry, but I knew the mind games. I'd run selection in the ranger wing. I knew the mind games. I knew that nothing lasts forever. I knew when the truck's up ahead of you and you're, you know, at the end of a 12 or 18 miler and you almost get to it and they drive away, that's a fucking mind game, man. It's up the road. You'll yeah. be okay. They're looking for people to quit. I, I, I need a mind game. I played the mind games better than they could, right? So I, I, I just knew, look, this doesn't last forever. Suck it the fuck up and get through it. And... um it was, you know, it was the same thing. You wake up in the middle of the night and there's the, you, you fell asleep in a room with 25 people in it and you wake up the next day and there's 14. You're like, where did everybody go? Yeah. I remember they had, uh, actually that was an SUT. They had uh, a big formation and they're like, if you want to quit, take a step to the rear and, and move to the right. And I'm like, nobody's going to quit. And then droves of people, you just hear movement around you. You're like, what the fuck is going on? And people just be quitting left and right. It was crazy. So I'd already played the mind games didn't bother me at all and I was very fit and I was I trained specifically for it so I didn't have a problem when you were in that um, experience comparing it to the ranger wing experience was there similarities at all there was um, but I, I think and the ranger wing doesn't run selection now like they did back then uh, and part of the attrition was in the ranger wing was we broke a lot of people and you take uh, them to the point you, of you know, breaking you just them. break not not even mentally you're breaking them physically you know we broke yeah. a lot of good people because running them in boots every day is probably not good for guys you're trying to build up and, and get to serve in the unit so there was a lot of guys who got got broken physically that probably would have been good you know team members and rendering members so the, the unit has evolved like everywhere over the last couple of decades and they don't do that anymore um but there, there were some similarities, but it, it was because it was like ranger school over there and it was just a suck fest here. And it was a lot of land nav and stuff like that. And I could already land nav, obviously, after spending seven years there. Um, it, it was, it was kind of apples and oranges, honestly. There was a few similarities, but it was just a different experience. But I was just checking a box to move on. Yeah. So you, you, you get through um, selection and you go back to your unit. Was it... And people, some people don't understand this, but there's a big difference between the regular army and special operations. Yeah, and not just you know the physical appearance and the the mission set and everything else, but people who serve in the regular army have a greater appreciation for special forces because it's like I have nowhere else to go, and I'm sure as hell not going back to the regular army. Mm -hmm. To go back to the regular army is like going back to the ghetto. You mm -hmm. know, it's like going back somewhere that you just never wanted to be in the first place, and um, you know, for you being a team leader, squad leader in the regular army, and then going in uh, special forces, was that easy to put behind you because you knew it was like the next phase, or did you miss the regular army? No, I was ready to move on. I was a senior staff sergeant when I went to selection. So I, by the time I finished the Q course, I was an E7 sergeant for a class, which is like a platoon sergeant. I was a pretty senior guy. Uh, I was in a hurry to make rank because I wanted that more that responsibility and I wanted to move up. I, I don't want to be a junior guy anymore. So I was ready to put the regular army behind me 100% and move out and do something a little different where I was given the responsibility I wanted. And, and that's not to say there's anything wrong with the regular army. Different, different units suit different people. There's guys that are in the regular army their whole career and they're rock stars, man. They love it. They're super good yeah. at what they do and they fucking love it. And the truth is soft can't 
survive without regular army support. It, it, you know, we're a small cog, but we need a lot of support. So I, I would never, me and you have talked about this. There was, when we were in Iraq in 06 and 07, we were going out at night. We were stacking the deck in our favor. We had rocked, we left and right. You had highly trained guys. You had Spectre gunships, Apache, anything you want. The regular army infantry kids were rolling out in strikers every day on 12 and 18 hour patrols on an 18 month rotation, getting blown up and shot at and everything. Our, our mission in Iraq was very offensive in nature and theirs was very defensive. And honestly, their job was much harder than ours was in, in that particular theater of operation. So I have a lot of respect for the regular army, and I, I and, um, but some units suit some people more than others, you know. Yeah, conventional forces. It's just a different it version. It's a different of, animal. Yeah, different mm-hmm. animal completely. Um, you choose. Uh, I'm assuming you choose 18 Bravo Special Forces weapons. So because I was super senior, I wanted the fastest path through the Q course as possible, and there was a war on, right? Yeah. I wanted the fastest path through the through uh, the Q courses I could, so I was like, I want to be an 18 Bravo weapons guy. And I'm a weapons guy anyway. I'm a I'm a gun guy, and I picked French because I did French in high school and I knew I could crush it. And I didn't want to do a lot of studying. And I picked 18 Bravo because it's the shortest course. Yeah. And I just tried. So I went start to finish in the Q course in 10 months. Yeah. Rocket. Which train. is rare to yeah, do. Yeah, it is. But then I got kicked in the balls when I graduated. You know, I don't know, even know if you knew about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, I vaguely so, remember, but. So because yeah. the war was kicking off. So this is 02, 03. Yeah. And because the uh, the Afghan war was kicking, was rolling at this point, and the war in Iraq was starting to ramp up, and the invasion was going on, they started pulling guys out of the schoolhouse, the special war. This is bananas, by the way, the fact that they did this. I know. It's insane. It's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. But yeah, so. They uh, they started pulling instructors out of the schoolhouse and sending them back to their unit because they didn't have enough people in SF because we're getting pulled across the, the, all over the place now. So to augment the Q course, especially SUT, small unit tactics, they pulled certain people at the end of the Q course to go back and be an instructor. So me and about six or eight or ten, I can't remember, E6s, I think they even pulled E5s. They pull us out. Instead of us going to the group, we went to group, we in process, and then we, we had to spend, and it was supposed to be a year, but I only spent six months there because they wanted to PCS us in the summer. Um, they sent us to be assistant instructors on the Q course uh, for SUT. And it was funny because they kept, they, they, when they briefed us, they started blowing smoke. They're like, you guys were the best guys we could find. We were, we were talking to their, the, the training group CSM, the sergeant major. And we were arguing. I had all my arguments laid laid down. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna win this fight. And he was like, "We we picked the best guys we could find." And that was complete bullshit, man. They just picked any random guy that had an infantry background. And one of the guys that was in there with me, he said, "Hey, Sergeant Major, I failed SUT when I went through the Q course." Uh, he was uh, trying to get out. He was of trying there to too. get out of yeah, it. And he yeah. said, "I failed SUT and I had to get recycled." Uh-huh. And the Sergeant Major said, "Well, this is a good chance for you to brush up on your skills." Oh, so I was like, it, "I was like, there's no yeah. point in arguing. I'm yeah, not getting out of this, man. Whatever yeah. it takes to get convince yeah. people to do it." So I spent about six months there, and then I went to third group and deployed down yeah. range. You know, so it was a bit of a kick in the balls, but you know, it is what it is. You get to see the inside of the special uh, warfare center. I though, did. And I got bit. to see. I got to see. Uh, you know, I've said in the past that when I went through the Q course and you're the same, 
I've seen some of the best instructors I've ever seen in my life, and I've also seen some of the fucking worst. Yeah. And you learn as much from bad instructors as you do from good ones. And you, you learn, especially when you're older and more mature, I never want to be like that fucking guy right there because he's a dirtbag, and he thinks that teaching is just smoking the piss out of people. It's a cover-up. It's covering up the fact that you're a shitty instructor and you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So I never wanted to be like that. Well, we talked about some some teaching philosophies, and one of the things that we were we were discussing was the fact that you know there's some institutions that develop a culture where um, attriting people, getting rid of people, having people quit is a um, you know a badge of honor, and mm-hmm. protecting the badge and yeah. saying that you know you know it's not for everybody is what, mm-hmm. is what you said. And so you know, talk about that a little bit because that's important for people to understand. Like there, there's a time and place, right? When we're talking about ranger tabs where it's meant to be difficult because that's what you're assessing under stress mm-hmm. and under difficult times versus uh, special forces sniper school where you're training the rangers and special forces guys and mm-hmm. you know some of the best. Uh, what what's that culture uh, like uh, from your experience of just trying to weed at dudes out as opposed to training them? Yeah, having been in two armies and been through basic training and selection twice, there's nothing in the army as hard as people pretend it to be, honestly, because if I attrit, as me as an instructor, if I attrit a lot of people, it makes my accomplishment bigger. So I've seen it throughout my career, and so have you, that you'll get these instructors that try to fail people because it makes it seem like their accomplishment is bigger. And and I just don't get it because when a student fails, that's a reflection of your teaching ability. You know, I, I just don't get it. And, you know, we, we were in Sephardic together and Sephardic's a different animal because it's CQB and it's hostage rescue and it's it's blowing doors and all that. And people lose their mind when they're overwhelmed. And, that, and you can become dangerous very quickly if you, if you get overwhelmed, you get tunnel vision when you're firing a, a, you know, a, a meter in front of a guy on the other side of the room and you're blowing charges and throwing flat. I get that. And if you can't hack that, at a certain point, you got to get cut loose. Yeah. But laying on your belly and shooting targets and, and learning how to call wind and all that, it, I, it, it blew my mind that, that instructors were almost trying to fail people because you're a Green Beret. Your job is to train people. And some people don't know that. Your job is to train Indige. So if you can't train Rangers and other Green Berets, how the hell are you going to train Iraqis and, you know, Kuwaitis and, and, and whoever else you're, you're, you're lined up to train? Mm. So I, 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 we can talk about it later. But when I, when I ran cyber school, I tried to instill a pride of ownership in your students. It's your job to get them true. And you will never lower standards. But if you got to come in on Saturday and give some extra training, then you got to come in on Saturday and give some extra training. You're not lowering standards. You're raising the level of instruction because you're supposed to be a world-class instructor. And get over yourself, man. We need snipers downrange. Killing bad guys. Yeah, I think you know part of that was like this legacy idea that was probably generated in peacetime militaries where you have nothing else better to do. Let's yeah. just fuck with these students. Yeah. It's like why? Yeah. You know, yeah. we're trying to train the force yep. in a time of war. Mm-hmm. That's a completely different animal. And um, you've had a lot of experience with that, which I, I love talking about that even in um, uh, microcosms because it's important for people to understand kind of your training philosophy, but also that that stems from experience and leading the Special Forces Sniper course and, I, I and will, other means. I will say there was a time when I was a young instructor, I smoked the piss out of people because yeah. I thought that's what certain instructors were supposed to do. Yeah. But I, when you mature and you get better at it and you understand and, 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 and you know, we just ran it one day ballistics long-range shooting course and 
people people have like you can't teach long range shooting in one day okay um sometimes it's about as much about knowing what not to teach as it is what to teach mm. so after years and years and years of experience i can tell you that i'm not touching corialis because i don't give a fuck what the rotation of the earth is doing when we're shooting inside a thousand meters doesn't matter yeah. you know so there's a lot of stuff that people will talk about oh corialis and this and that and the other to make themselves sound smarter but I don't give a fuck. If I'm inside a thousand meters, a lot of things don't matter. Yeah. So I will teach you exactly what you need to understand why you miss. Yeah. And I'm not making you a sniper in one day. I'm not, but I'm giving you enough to whet your appetite that you want to seek knowledge and learn more. Yeah. So you, you know when you're when you're serving, you obviously uh, were an instructor at the tail end of your career. Um, you're always an instructor as a Green Beret, but you ran uh, certain schools in the schoolhouse and did uh, and ran the leadership uh, sc uh, leadership school in the qualification course as well. Prior to that, you had a myriad of combat experiences in uh, different detachments and different capacities in your job. You know, some takeaways. What were some takeaways for for you from combat that you learned as a whole that made you a better instructor and in leading up to the time in which you were taking the schools? Well, you know, I remember talking to an Israeli sniper instructor a couple of years ago, and he was like, the, the template that SF have for instruction of is, is phenomenal. He said, we envy it. Because what SF does is it has a, so all the schools in SWIC, which is the Special Warfare Center and School, all those schools have a stable of civilian instructors who are the continuity, who spend years there, and, they've, they've, they're, and they're retired SF guys. But on top of that, they have Green Berets who filter in every year and come back from the war and from the conflict all over the world in different groups, and they bring their experiences. So you're constantly getting relevant information from guys with relevant combat experience because the war is different right now than it was three years ago. The um, A lot of the conflicts that are going on now, and, and, and I talk to Green Berets all the time, and they, they share that with me, but you need to get new once you're off a team for a little while, you're almost irrelevant. You need to get current information and TTPs and constantly involve, constantly evolve. And you, unfortunately, you get two types of sniper, I'm not sniper, SWIC instructor. You get the guy who comes in and falls in and does exactly what the guy before him did, or you get the guy that comes in and tries to make things better and tries to evolve the course and, and change all the TTPs. And, and that's the guy you need. And that's the guy I've always wanted. And that's the brief I always give guys when they come work for me. Look, you need to bring your experiences, bring your knowledge, and let's evolve constantly. Yeah, I, th I think it's important um, practice and methodology to introduce in a training period. Because like you said, the, you know, tactics and techniques and procedures and the way that people... Um, combat terrorist or, or terrorist TTPs evolve on the battlefield, if you're not ahead of it by thinking always about mm -hmm. shaping your tactics, then you're irrelevant. Yeah. Then you're then you're complacent. Then mm -hmm. you're running the risk of endangering yourself, your units, and then everything else. I mean, I remember the experience that we went through in 2007 when uh, Di Tommaso said, hey, we are not uh, kicking in, blowing in the doors, mm -hmm. and doing DA assaults. We're going to do this new thing called the call-out. And everybody's like, what the hell? We're like, we're not fucking cops, man. It's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Talk about that experience a little bit. Because, you know, in the context of, you know, training and TTPs and the way that we evolved in war, that, that was pretty shocking for us, right? I mean, we wanted to kick in and blow. The, the, the year prior, we did every single out. We did, yeah. We did. Um, I don't know. Can we talk about TTPs? 
Uh, well, a little bit, yeah. As the evol- I, I just just on a, on a general term, yeah, like, the evolution people, of and war. A, yeah. And again, I was a senior guy, and this new TTP was put in front of us, and I was like, "That's bullshit, man." But me and you were on that mission. We were on many, many missions where we got in massive gunfights. But that one where Vinny died, the dog, that one, they, there was like thirteen or fourteen suicide bombers on that target. Kitted out. Had we kicked guns, in the yeah. door, we'd lost half our company yeah. on that mission. That PKM gun, right? Yep, there was a PKM pointed at the front door, caddy cornered in another room that would have cut us to pieces. So that was a learning experience for me, man. I'm constantly learning. Every time I do anything, I learn shit. But I was like, damn, man, this could have ended really, really badly. And the only thing we, we you know, it was tragic. But we lost a dog on that mission. But we all we all flew away. We yeah, we're lucky. We yeah. were lucky, yeah. And at the time, I was like, damn, I was wrong as fuck on that. And I'm, I, I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. And I'm wrong a lot. But I'm willing to learn and move on. Um, TDPs change because the enemy gets smarter. And at that time in Iraq, we'd killed all the stupid ones. It was all the fucking smart ones that were left. And they'd learn how to fight Americans. Yeah. And they knew what they were doing. And these were foreign fighters that we came up against that night. And mm. it could have went so so badly had, had we not evolved before that. Yeah, and there's a lot of influence on the battlefield now from different countries that are more advanced in technology, but also their TTPs that are shaping the battlefield that you know that we saw years ago fighting dummies, and today, uh, even today as we speak, um, they're getting smarter on the battlefield with smarter TTPs. I mean, we lost in 10th Special Forces Group and 2nd Battalion, uh, we've lost four guys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, just to think about the fact that we're 19 years later into this war and we're still losing guys on the battlefield just tells you that we constantly have to be evolving our tactics in order to stay ahead. Um, So you do multiple combat deployments and then you're into the position where the SWIC monster comes down on you. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about SWIC, which is the Special Warfare Center schoolhouse that runs all U.S. Army Special Forces training. Um, And that schoolhouse is a beast um, that has multiple schools, including leadership schools and the qualification course. And then you became the first sergeant of one of the leadership schools, which is WLC, mm-hmm. which acted as the E5 and E6, uh, which was w, or WLC, the Warrior Leaders Course, and BNOC at the time. Yeah. Uh, so it's like the combination of those two. So y- you don't have to go to um, both of them if you were like an E4 or E5. Yeah. So you didn't have to go to yeah. know, one and then another. Yeah. They went to you and got both knocked out at once. There are army schools, yeah. So the yeah. Swick, the Swick monster has hit me twice, and some guys that don't get hit at all, like you, fuckers, mm-hmm. fucking sneak out of it, right? Yeah. Because you bounce around, you know how to play yeah. it. But when I came up, when you're the senior 18 Bravo in the company, you're going to fucking Swick unless you yeah. deviate somehow. And I came up on Swick orders. In 08, and I was pissed because we were supposed to deploy, and I was supposed to work the Iraqi counter-terrorist sniper teams, and. Um, but when you're on SWIC orders, anybody that's an SF, it's it's almost impossible to get out of it because everybody tries to get out of it. And I went to SWIC kicking and screaming, and it, it was a great experience for me, actually, because I got to work at sniper school. And the way SWIC works, if you don't know, when you come up on SWIC orders, if you have a lot of skills, which I had, and you have a really good reputation, you can almost pick anywhere you want to work. So all the good guys go to all the free fall school and sniper school and Sephoric and all that, all the guys who have really good reputations and a lot of skills. And then the guys who don't go to SUT and stuff like that. <laughs> it's what it is, man. I don't mean to disparage you, but that's a fact. Yeah. Um, 
So I, I was in SWIC there for three years as a sniper instructor, and, and I ran the sniper school, and then I went back to be a team sergeant. And then at the end of that, they were trying to groom me to be a sergeant major, so they wanted me to be a first sergeant. And an SF, if you're a first sergeant, you, you have pretty, to pretty much yeah. a shoe in to be a sergeant major. Yep. So um, I looked at a couple of different job offers, and the one that got offered at, at the Warrior Leader course was for junior NCOs for PSYOP, Civil Affairs, and SF. So when... when um, like an 18 X-ray, for example, when he came in, he did basic training, AIT, advanced infantry training, jump school, and then he came to Bragg and he did uh, selection. He did selection, SOPC pre- pre- preparation. Yep. Then he did selection, and at the end of selection, he came to me for 22 days to learn how to do leadership, right? And and you got you got a bunch of kids. Every class I had was 128 students, and you got kids who don't know how to follow, and you're trying to teach them leadership. But when I looked at it, it, it attracted me because I was thinking, generally, if you can get these kids super early and you show them what a Green Beret NCO is supposed to look like, and I was hard on my cadre. I I, I forced them to be squared. I'm like, these kids better walk away here. And in the end of course critique, I want them to write down that the the cadre here are the most professional NCOs they've ever seen in their career because you need to take that away. They need to put you on a pedestal. So we were super squared away. We were super professional. And it's an Army school. So we would knock out the Army POI pretty quickly, and then we would try to prepare them for, for the Q course. So we did a lot of SUT. We did a lot of um, mentoring, you know, the coach counsel and mentor, try to evolve these kids and, and um, get them ready for the Q course. So it attracted me because, like I said, getting these kids super early on, you can have an impact on their career. And kids have gone come up to me years later and said hey you were the first sergeant i really appreciate you you know what i mean and and, and that's awesome i love when they do that because um yeah you, you need to see what right looks like when you're a young soldier i, I like how you told me that you came into that schoolhouse because when we went through i remember those guys that were there as cadre for the exception of a few guys but for the most part they're the most unprofessional dudes well, <laughs> it's just met. it's a type personalities man yeah. and you you will see sometimes SF guys will hold kids to standards that they can't uphold, yeah. right? And, and that's not always true. But I went in and I shadowed and I watched and watched and watched. And then day one when I took over, I said, okay, explain to me why we're doing this and we won't change it. And What's an example of one of the things? Fire guard, right? So fire guard's an old army thing when you, were, when you were in a wooden hut with a potbelly stove. And if everybody was asleep, you're all going to die because it's going to burn the fuck down, right? So fire guard is... Uh, it's an old army thing. So we were we were forcing, like we had 10 classes, classrooms of like 15 kids or whatever it was in each one. And each one of them had to have a fire guard up at all times. So they did one hour shifts. So if if you're on fire guard and I wake you up at 2.45 in the morning because your shift's at three and you need to go over and take a piss and come back, sit there for an hour, and then it takes you and another 30 minutes to get back to sleep. I just fucked up your sleep cycle. And these kids were falling asleep in class. And they were missing important information. So I was like, why are we doing fire guard? And they were like, oh, yeah, you know, they need to learn how to pull guard. And I was like, great, I, I get it. They can learn somewhere else. And we've got we've got a modern building with fucking 100 different alarm systems on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> fire guard's gone. If you can't articulate to me why we're doing it, it's gone. And some of it was just like 
that's the way we've always done it. And I hate that fucking answer. You know, you need to relook at everything you do. So that was one. And then we were, they were making them run everywhere because that's what you do in selection. I had shin splints and n- yeah. no other part of the game yeah. course except for yeah. that, that yeah. class. Yeah. Well, I'm like, why are we making them run everywhere? Oh, because that's what they do in selection. This is not fucking selection. This is an NCOES school. Yeah. Gone. What else? And I, I just went down the line. And, and there was a few things where they, they could articulate. Why did it? I said, okay, I'll buy that. I'll, I'll reassess it. But if you couldn't tell me why you're doing it, it was fucking stupid. I took it out. Yeah. And um, what's kind of some of your approaches in assessing things like that? Is it just common sense and logic? I, I think it's just common sense and experience. Mm. You know, I, 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 and I, I think this is where it helps going through two different Q courses and two different selections and two different basic training. I'm just like, okay, let's see where these kids are right now. And does it make sense for, for what, where they are at their point in their career? You know, another thing I did, we used to do, when I got there, we did end-of-course critiques at the end of the course, right? But if you give me an end-of-course critique and you pick the top three kids in your class and the bottom three and why, it's too late for me to help them. So I did it every week. And a lot of times, um, the first week you'd get, hey, these are the rock stars because they stand out and I already knew who they are. But these are the quiet guys. They're, they're super quiet and introverted. And I'd take them in and I'd quietly talk to them and say, hey, check it out. I would rather have a quiet kid on my team than a loud motherfucker who never shuts the fuck up. But you're in a job in an MOS where you kind of got to be an outgoing type of guy and introverts don't do well. They just don't. And you, you've got to be able to go in as a young Green Beret and talk to colonels and generals and, and, and articulate ambassadors and, yeah. ambassadors and, and, and brief missions and all. You, you got to get confident, man. You got, you got to come out of that shell. And it's mm. tough for a kid when he's, he's kind of quiet and introverted and like that. But, and he's a kid. But it, it, it just plants that seed that, that I, I got to try and come out of this shell a little bit. And, and that's mostly what we did. So we, we did peers every Friday. And they, those kids did get better. Like the next week, they may or may not be on that bottom three, but by the end, they generally weren't because they were good kids. They were just kind of quiet, you know? Yeah. So we, we, we did that as well. We did a lot of stuff, and we changed a lot of things when when I was out there uh, for the better, I hope. And then, so you come to the tail end of your career, and you become uh, the NCIC of what your current position right now. Can we talk yeah. about that at all? Yeah. Um, so after I was a first sergeant, I, I, I could have went on to be a sergeant major, and I just, for, for my own personal reasons, I was, like, I was just like, I'm not doing that. Just just to articulate this, because um, maybe, maybe people don't understand the path, but once you commit to, even your first sergeant time, <coughs> um, and you commit to the sergeant major path, and they make you a sergeant major, mm-hmm. you're kind of you're kind of fucked. You've, because you've got like five years that you have to stay yeah, in. Yeah, because if you take the sergeant major position, well, one, if you deny the sergeant major position after they um, offer select you to select promotion, you, you're yeah, screwed. You're done. You're They'll done. give you six months to get out of the army. Yeah. yeah, and then if you do take it, then you're guaranteed to stay another additional like seven plus year. Because after the sergeant major academy, it's mm-hmm. like five, and you lose control yeah. of the last five years of your career, so they can yeah. send you anywhere they want. For years uh, at a for time. For years at a time. And I was like, you know what? At this yeah. point in my career, I haven't been doing this for a long, long... I don't want to fucking deal with it, you know? So I looked at two paths. I, I knew the NCO, or the sergeant major in charge of Range 37, which has Sephardic and Sodic, and he offered me a job to take over the sniper school again. And I reached out to a couple of people I really respected, and one of them was Todd Hodnett. And I said, Todd, I got two job offers. I can go back and run sniper school or I can go to force modernization and work on all the soft peculiar equipment and modernize uh, the force. Right? The force. Yeah. And he, he, Todd said to me, 
And me and Todd have been Fred for years. He said, you can make an impact at sniper school, but you can make a much bigger impact at force modernization and bring that expertise to it. So I took that force mod job and I went in to work guns and bullets and optics. And after a year, they made me the NCIC against my will. So I, I, for the last couple of years, I've been in charge of all force modernization and, and people don't realize how big it is because the army does, we get a lot of equipment from the army, but when that equipment doesn't meet our operational need as soft, we spend our own dollars on it. So I, I, I have like, a staff like 19 green brands that work for me and, and we run guns bullets optics nods trucks uniforms body armor drones counter drone communication it's, it's like hundreds of programs so um i've been able to hire the right guys for the right job with the right skill set and, and we, we've done a lot of good we, we've moved a lot of programs forward but it's a staff job at the end of the day and i'm um I'm ready to move on. Yeah, well, you have limitations, right, in, a, in, a, in that kind of position. But yeah. you didn't have much choice. You took the $150,000 bonus, which was a, a big bonus back in the day, but it's like a, a reenlistment opportunity that was years ago where you, at the time, could take a bonus and then basically add seven more years to your potential. Uh, six. And, or six, six years. Yeah. Oh, because you do it. We well, could do it at the 18-year mark. So some guys did it at the 18. Uh, I thought it was 19, but okay. Oh, yeah. It I might would, be 18 or 19. Yeah. But anyways, a lot of people... That uh, shit doesn't go as far as you think it goes. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, you pay off your truck and, you know, and, and a few it. other things. And I'm like, damn, what happened to my bank account? But Yeah. It's, I know so many guys who are in that, on that same path. I don't even know if it's... See, if I, was the general, if I was in charge for a day, mm -hmm. I'd give that bonus at the 10-year mark. I'd lock a oh, young. You, I'd lock Air a, Force does like some services do. Yeah. yeah, I'd lock that young Green Beret in at ten years for the rest of for ten more years, yeah. and I'd give him that chunk of money to make him financially stable. And he'll spend it in six months. And he'll spend it in six <laughs> months, man. Yeah, but that's on him. But that's what I would do because you give it to senior senior guys, man. Yeah. They've, 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 you know, well, you, you, can, you only get so much from them. You get choked up at, at the bottleneck too. I mean, it, you get so many people at so many high level positions, mm -hmm. and I think that was one of the the issues. I was on that E seven to E eight list that was like two years long before yeah. I can get pinned. Yeah, and it was yeah. like hundreds of people, and we were just waiting because yep. there was nowhere else for senior guys to go. Yeah, you know, you know, the the uh, people are always asking me the difference between the Irish Army and the American Army. And the, the differences are huge, right? But one of the things I think that the Irish Army did better than the American Army. In the American Army, you have to get promoted mm -hmm. in a certain window when you pin on a new rank, or you got to get out of the Army. I never understood that move up or move out mentality. Not everybody's a fucking leader. In the Irish Army, if you want to be a private and be a truck driver for 20 years, good on you. Yeah. You could stay there as a well, private. You, you got you got a you got a, a raise every year. Yeah. You stayed there and you were the baddest ass fucking truck driver in the world because you've been doing it for twenty yeah. years. And that guy loved his job. He was really good Comfortable at it. And he it, had yeah. no interest in being a leader. I yeah. just I just never understood and, that mentality. And that's called it like that's an employee. That's yeah. you know, that's what you do. You yeah. soldier. Yeah. yeah. But but we we have this idea that progression mm -hmm. there's a progressive nature to the military, right? Because if you don't make rank and you don't meet the time and service requirement and then it, it caps and then yeah. they push them out. Yeah, I never understood that. And the yeah, other thing never. I didn't understand is um in the Irish Army, if you got a DUI, the civilian uh, government, the civilian police punished you. Yeah. Army in the American Army, you get punished by the civilian police, and you get punched again by the yeah. army. You lose your career. I don't understand that. You fucking had a DUI. Great, you lost your license. The army would take away your driver's license, your yeah. army driver's license, because you can't have you driving a truck through town when you have no civilian driver. Yeah. But other than that, they didn't give a fuck, man. Yeah. You got punished by the civilian like any other job. 
You got punished by the civilian. I don't understand why you had to get punished twice in the U.S. military. That never made yeah. sense to me. We burned a lot of good guys because of stupid shit. Mm-hmm. That you know, it, you know, uh, there's some things that are subjective. Some things that uh, there's a there's a broader uh, understanding of it. And to think that somebody could get in a bar fight mm-hmm. and then you could ruin their 15 year career yeah. because they got in a bar fight yeah. when they were punished on the civilian side. Yeah. And then you decide to punish them on the military. And you were side. hired. You were hired. For certain traits, yeah, that sometimes those traits kill enemy combatants, and sometimes those traits punch a motherfucker in the mouth when he talks shit in yeah. a bar. You know, that's true. You, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't have a super aggressive guy who kills people for a living, yeah, and a guy who fucking pussies out when somebody bones up on him. Yeah, yeah. Up on him, that's know? what I tell all my ex girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when you look back on on your military career and all the things that you've done, what's the most satisfying thing that you've done? Like, what brought you the most satisfaction? Oh six, oh seven, mm. the war on terror, man. When, yeah, me, the and pinnacle, you, when yeah. me and you worked together, especially oh seven. Mm. Um, people forget now because it's been a couple of years. In two thousand seven, we were losing the war in Iraq. We were getting mm. our ass kicked. Yeah. And without getting into details, basically, when we got there, we were told. Gloves are off. Go do what you do, boys. And we would, uh, we fucking, not the, the whole surge thing was a successful strategy because we put, you know, infantry soldiers in every neighborhood in Baghdad and we give the insurgents nowhere to go. And I've seen TV shows about it. Nobody mentions us, which I'm good with that because that's what we do. But guys like us were going out every single night and bringing the fight to the enemy. And that had a huge impact on that, that the success of it. So I would say the pinnacle of my career over the last freaking couple of decades was was the summer of 2007 when we worked together. It was fucking phenomenal. Yeah. I always remember the 2-2 SAS commander giving a brief after they lost some guys in a helicopter crash on target. Yeah. But he was like a go-to-war speech, and everybody was there from the task force. And then after it was all said and done, we all, we loaded helicopters like right yeah. after that. Yeah. And it was yeah. just like, I mean, you could hear the music playing as we all <laughs> flew off into the darkness. Good times, man. Good um, times. Yeah, it was super good times. Um, so what do you think about transitioning out of the military into civilian life? How Do you think it's going to be like it was when you transitioned out of the Irish Army? No, no. not at all. Not right. at all. I'm, 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 I, I think, you know, a lot of people feel that loss of sense of purpose and, and, and trying to f- figure out their, their next move. I think I already went through that and I'm good now. And I'm, yeah. looking, I'm looking forward to moving on. I've been a soldier for a long time. So I'm looking to move on and then, uh, you know, come work with you, man. We, we've been, we've been friends for a long time yeah. and, uh, we understand each other and, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I've always liked to teach. I've always liked to teach people, especially people who are really willing to learn and really want to learn. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a very private person. The whole social media thing doesn't, it goes against the grain for me, especially this here. And, and, but I just have to look at it as the next phase of my life. And I just got to suck it the fuck up. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's a, a tactful way. Like I even articulate to some people in our inner circle. And I'll say this out loud that, you know, what I show on social media isn't always my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm not trying to paint a pretty picture, but you can only tell so much of your life in one post with a couple hundred words. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people use social media in a positive way by learning from people's experiences. And the But people often misperceive um, uh, the creative content that people portray in their in their stories. 
And I always, you know, I always drive this point home because I always want to be known as keeping it real. You know, mm -hmm. like, hey, Mike was real because this he was like willing to talk about things that normal people weren't willing to talk about mm -hmm. because they wanted to portray themselves in a certain way. And the way I look at media is an opportunity to teach people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not about painting a picture for anybody. It's about, you know, passing on one, some positivity, but two, some experiences and hopefully you know, whether it's preparation, first aid tactics, or even mindset that somebody takes that away and goes, Oh, well, this has improved my life. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to tell you my fucking life story. On well, social the, media. The stuff that you put on social media and podcasts is, is tip of the iceberg. You know, I, I told you before my, my uh, captain was like, he was following you. He didn't know we were friends, you know, and he asked me, Does, is he exaggerating when he talks about combat? And I was like, he's playing it down because me and you have done, I can't remember, maybe over a hundred, uh, definitely over at least a hundred yeah. combat ops. And some of those combat ops lasted all night going from target to target to mm -hmm. target in massive gunfights. And I, I know your background and I know the stuff you've talked about is very, very minute compared to the stuff that we've done. And, yeah. and, and, and you've done stuff, stuff since, you know, we went separate ways a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's part of it gives you credibility to teach people that, uh, will will listen to you but it, it's not about you man it, it's teaching is super um satisfying for both of us yeah yeah i think when when i think about and it, it kind of bothers me because some people have accused me of this but i'm not driven by money mm -hmm. i mean i've just never have been like mm -hmm. i like you know you know me you know my life you know my uh background you you know what i have and I just don't get care. Nah, I'll give it all away. It can yeah. burn to the ground. I'll give it away. It's just, I'm not driven by that. But mm -hmm. something that excites me about the future and even what we're doing now, but the future of uh, doing what we're doing now is affecting people in a positive way and having them develop and grow like so many that we've trained overseas. I mean, mm -hmm. I think often about the Iraqi counterterrorism force, the ICTF, and even the ERU that are taking the fight. They took the fight to ISIS. And mm -hmm. It's really one of the only reasons that ISIS yeah. hasn't dominated Iraq. They were the only part of the Iraqi army who actually stood and fight. Yeah, and, and, and died. And fucked those guys up, too, yeah. and died in big numbers. Yeah, yeah. Guys yeah. we know died in big numbers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. I'm excited about the future, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I mean, it's uh, I always I look at the clock now. It's an hour and 40, but it seems like such a short snapshot Damn. of so many experiences that you got to do, and this is mm -hmm. going to be the number two podcast of probably a 1,000 that we're going to do, and I know that's super motivating for you. <laughs> God, what have I done? It's just a conversation. I wish I'd never met you. <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny. Neil goes, I can't believe you got him. I know. Everybody says media. that. Well, he said that on the live feed, and I said, I didn't tell Kev that this is just for my archive, and he doesn't know it's live, <laughs> and he started laughing. Oh, man. Uh, that's so awesome. All right, Kev. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, man. All right, man. Later. Later.